Gospel of John, part 9, going to be in the book of John, chapter 3, starting at verse 13 through 21, entitled, Whoever Believes. Catch you up a little bit from the last time we talked about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader of the day, and, and he um, set up a meeting with Jesus at nighttime, kind of in secret, but checking Jesus out for himself, and he says, it's evident that you're from God because no one can do the signs and wonders that you do unless God was with him. And it's interesting, Jesus responds to him, he says, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how does a person go back in his mother's womb? How, that's weird. How, what is that? What do you mean? And Jesus said, no, assuredly I tell you, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without being born again. And Nicodemus says, this is hard to understand. And, and Jesus says, I'm telling you, people have to be born with, by water. You, you know, you, the water bag breaks, you're born on earth. That's how you gain entrance to earth through your mom, physical birth on earth. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a spiritual birth. You actually have to be born again. You have to have, your spirit has to become alive. Only alive spirits will enter the kingdom of heaven, not dead spirits. And he's saying, I'm, I'm putting this in, in, in terms for you as best I can. Um, and, and we get down to verse uh, 11 and 12. Jesus says, I assure you, <clears throat> we tell you, so it's just Jesus there and Nicodemus, that's it. And he says, we tell you what we know and what we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, it says, God made man in his image. And, he, and it, right before that, it says, God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created he, them, male and female. What was that about? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, essentially he's telling Nick right here, he goes, we tell you. Nicodemus, growing up, being a Pharisee as he was, knows the scriptures. We, our. Who is this Jesus claiming to be? He couldn't be claiming to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah. It couldn't be, it, could it? Is Jesus, and we've been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years could it he's not claiming to actually be the Christ, the Messiah on earth. Is, he, is that what he's saying? Is that what Jesus is claiming to be? And Nick is listening and hearing. But if you don't believe me, verse 12, when I tell you about earthly things, being born again, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? He says, I'm drawing, a, I'm doing a, a color, a crayon picture for you right now. And if you're not grasping that, if you're not connecting the dots with this crayon, how in the world could I ever reveal the things of heaven that you've never seen or heard of before? I'm using earthly analogies and physical things that you can see and touch to try to describe things, to make a correlation. How will you ever believe if I tell you heavenly things? John 3.13, that's where we pick up today. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. He's still talking to Nick. What does that mean? No one's ever gone to heaven and returned. And I was just thinking back in the, in the Old Testament, and we know Isaiah had a vision of heaven. Uh, it's caught up. He had a vision. 
We know that um, Enoch was, was taken up to heaven. Elijah was taken up to heaven. But they didn't come back down. They didn't take a walk around, live up there for a while, and then come back down and live on earth. But here, no one has ever gone up to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. This will blow your minds. 950 years before Jesus was born, there's a book of Proverbs in your Bible. Chapter 30 of Proverbs is written by um, Agar. Um, I don't know how you pronounce that. Agar? Agar? Look what he wrote. He's, he wrote this. In the middle of the book of Proverbs, probabilities, good general instruction for living in life. A lot of people love that book. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Is that not peculiar? Is that not weird? That someone 950 years before Jesus wrote that. That there's a God who has ascended to into heaven or descended. Talks about God, his power. What is God's name and what is his son's name? Just strange. Strange. Very interesting. He says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man has come down from heaven. So, so Nicodemus would have known Proverbs 30. Who has ascended? Who has descended? He studied that scripture and wrestled with it. What does that mean? Who does, what does that mean? What does that mean? And now Jesus is saying, no one has ever ascended except for the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And he says, Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself 80, 82 times. I looked it up. 82 times. 82 times. That's the, that's the way he most often referred to himself was the Son of Man. Um, also son of God, he referred to himself in many ways, but son of man in relating to humanity, relating to humanity, fully human, fully God, fully human at the same time. The word of God taking on flesh, dwelling among us. That was a few uh, sessions ago. We go back earlier in John, we talked about that. But he's referring to himself as the son of man. And Nicodemus would have caught on to that because Daniel, the book of Daniel, look at this. This was a prophecy by Daniel. Daniel was probably 500 years before, 400, 500 years uh, before Christ. And Daniel writes, chapter 7, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There's the Son of Man right there. Jesus said, the Son of Man. No one's ever gone to heaven or returned, but the Son of Man who has come down from heaven. Just a tangent here. I just have to, uh, ridiculous. Uh, went on Google, I was looking up Daniel and, and clicked on Wikipedia, and it says, Tales of Daniel. There's an undermining going on of history. Attempts to discredit and undermine the integrity of Scripture. And um, historical revisionism. 
things that happened in the past, you switch it or make it different or untrue or fairy tale. Interesting. What is truth? How does a person ascertain truth? Biases, agendas, preferences, politics, media, social media, search engines block or promote what they want you to see or believe or not believe or see. AI, artificial intelligence, a lot of great positives to it um, and negatives. Uh, the artificial is real. <laughs> I don't know if you get that. The artificial part of artificial intelligence is real, meaning it's programmed to run, operate in certain ways according to design and the diet or that which it consumes or learns, then that's what it will grow or, and or spit out based upon. What is truth? So even in Jesus' day, truth appeared to be subjective. And when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor person there, on trial, he says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? Before turning and walking back out of the court. What is truth? In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't merely claim to have truth. He claimed to be truth. I am the truth. Everything, everywhere, anywhere makes sense in light of me. You want truth on anything, anywhere, at any time, you'll find it through me. In me, through me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Number one in your notes, Jesus brings revelation. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's making, if you're Nicodemus and you know scripture, without a doubt, he's making claims, I am the Messiah. All the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that said that there's coming a redeemer that's coming, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, he would save the nation from their sins, all, all these things. I am him. I am the Messiah. Big claim here. And, and it's backed up. There's signs and wonders. That's why Nicodemus actually went to him. It's, it's evident that you're a teacher from God or you're a prophet. or what, who, what, How do you do that? What's this? Who are you? Because I am the Messiah. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, that's a, that's a big claim right there. Jesus, right now today, makes that claim to you and I. I am the Savior of the entire world. The world that was created through me, I entered into it. I am the savior of the entire world. That's a tough claim. That's catching you off guard a little bit. What do I do with that? How do I verify that? That's a big claim. Big claim. And verifying that, we've talked about that a couple weeks ago. We'll probably get into that again down the road. Um, I'm just going to lift up this book. This is a great little book, and it's uh, churches purchase it, but it's free to you. It's free. We would love everybody to grab and read one of these. Why Jesus? Just a short little book uh, talking about the claims of Christ, evidence for Christ, promises of Christ, getting to know them really well. And just a very short read there. These are available at Guest Central and uh, in the foyer. All right, John, uh, next verse, main passage here, John 3, 14 through 15. Jesus continues talking. It says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Just the word snake there gives me the heebie-jeebies. I like snakes behind glass, and even then, I, even then. Now, Andrew over here, he probably loves snakes because he does pest control. He enjoys, he enjoys, who enjoys snakes? Okay, all two of you. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go to the next picture quickly. <clears throat> snakes. Um, so just a history on, on snakes. Right away in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the snake, plays a part. And that's a whole story we're not going into. The free will of man, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the serpent says, hey, God didn't surely say that if you ate of the tree, you would... And there's some deception going on. They choose to believe a lie. Adam knows that it's a lie. They, they sin, so forth. Anyway, uh, verse 14 in Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Satan had entered into the serpent. Long story short. You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast on the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat the dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A snake is symbolic of sin itself. Associated symbolic of sin, symbolic of the enemy, a cursed enemy. Enmity, hostility between you and people. Sin of humanity, the sin of humanity has made humanity cursed enemies of God. This sin has separated us from God. The holiness of God, we are not holy, we've all sinned. Raise both hands. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. This sin thing has separated us from God, so, that, so a snake is almost symbolic of, and the curse of the snake, and the snake slithering on the ground and eating the dust or whatever, is to be for us a picture and a reminder of sin itself and the separation that happened and the curse that really the justice that was done at that point in time. So as Moses lifted up the snake on the, on the, the serpent on the pole, what is he referencing there? He's, he's referencing Numbers chapter 21, and, and Nicodemus would have known this well. So the children of Israel, um, back in history, 2,800 B.C., uh, 1,500 B.C., they come out of Egypt, as slaves, they cross the Sinai Peninsula. They're headed to the Promised Land, current-day Israel. And it's during that time when they're going across the, the Sinai Peninsula. They're wandering in the desert for some time. Um, God has rescued them miraculously, brought them through the Red Sea. Uh, and so they're coming across. God has done wonderful things, signs and wonderful. He's, there's nothing to eat in the desert, but he's giving them manna. They're finding this kind of bread-like substance every day when they wake up on the ground. They're collecting it. It's, they're keep, it's keeping them alive. But they're people, and they're fickle, and they have short, short memories, and they're greedy and selfish, much like you and I. A day or two goes by, and, and we're ungrateful, and they're ungrateful to God, and they're, and they're becoming discouraged along the way. And the people spoke against God, verse 5, and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. Our souls loathe this worthless bread. 
So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7, therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes these serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Very weird. Very, what is God doing? Why did that, why did he send the fiery? And then they're supposed to look at this image of a bronze snake up on a pole, fastened to a pole, nailed to a pole. Weird. Sin was eating the people up. So their ungratefulness and their rebellion against God, God said, okay, your snakes are symbolic of sin. I'm putting snakes in your, you're not listening. You don't respond to talk, correction. And so that devastation and destruction doesn't come to the entire people of Israel and the entire world. I am sending these snakes, symbolic of your own sin, to start eating you up, to poisoning you, poison you. And you so you can make that connection. Your sins have separated you from where your sins are bringing on self-destruction and is worthy of punishment. Your sin, the poison of your sin is killing you. And it worked. They said, oh, we sinned. Okay, uh, yep, this isn't good. We sinned again. We were wrong. We're sorry, Moses. God, we're sorry. God is gracious. And he said, Moses, put a snake, put something, put that symbol of sin itself, nail the sin itself to a post and lift it up. And all who come to it and look upon it, they will live. How many years ago was it when all of a sudden, I had never seen these things before in my life, the Asian beetle I've seen ladybugs growing up, but I've never seen the Asian beetle before. I, don't, I should have had a picture of it. Don't. You know what that is, too? You're my man today. Pest control. You know what Asian So, um, Asian beetles. And so, a lot of times, we'll spray our home in the fall to, so that all these insects don't get in the house. Well, the one year, we didn't, before we knew about this Asian beetle thing, oh, my word, all winter long, we were finding Asian beetles everywhere in our house. And then since then, we've been spraying until this year. I thought, I think we're okay. It's not as bad as that one year, but we're finding a few Asian beetles here and there. Infestation, Asian beetles. I'd much rather have that than fiery serpents. <laughs> fiery serpents everywhere. And, and this is the thought here. Um, well, Numbers 21.9. Numbers 21.9. So Moses made, so he did what God said. He made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when, he, the per, when the person looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Just so strange, so peculiar. Hey, guys, this is, it's funny. Our medical doctors today, that is the sign. That, that is the emblem that they have. You guys, you guys have made that connection before? Yeah, to this day, they, the medical doctors have that. That's a, 
um, medical doctor symbol. Let's say you are alive, you're one of the Israelites then, one of the Hebrews, and you or your friend or your child is bitten by one of these fiery snakes. What would you do? What would make sense for you? Because they're instructed to do, to do something that seems counterintuitive. I think with the time that you have, you're going to want to, you know, time is ticking down, you got poison in you, you're going to want to suck out the poison, you're going to want to find a salve, you're going to maybe bloodlet. You're going to, I don't know what they're thinking of, but probably, you know, what, what can we do? What can we do? How can I, how can we fix this? How can we, but the cure is not self-remedied in this situation. The cure is not self-remedied. Number two, our remedy is outside of ourselves. So they could do that. They could hide out in their tents and, and, and you know, elevate the legs and, and do whatever they can to try to save their child from this poison, but the remedy was outside of themselves. The root of the problem is something we cannot dig out with our own shovel. The cure is not something we can find or create with our intelligence, our morality, our effort, our resources. Only God can make a dead spirit alive. No dead spirit is deserving of life. No dead spirit can revive itself. John's talking to Nicodemus, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does that mean, lifted up? Lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. The phrase lifted up meant in that culture in which Jesus was living, crucifixion. The Romans crucified lots of people. Lots of people were lifted up. That's what it meant in their culture, lifted up. And just proof of that, proof text, uh, John chapter 12, verse 31 through 34, Jesus was talking to a group of people, now this, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking to Satan. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. See that? And the people answered him, we've heard that the law from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're trying to, what do you mean? If the Son of Man is supposed to reign and have dominion over everything for all time. So how can you say he's going to be lifted up and crucified? Point being, lifted up means crucified. Crucified. Now, guys, pay special attention because this is what the New Testament's all about. Galatians 3, verses 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23. That God's promised blessing might come to us and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. These are huge claims this morning. Really drawing a line in the sand. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 2.14, he has canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. 
<clears throat> so God was foreshadowing something. This is, the, this is, this is what's nuts. <laughs> is this right to say? This is what's nuts about God. Is that, <laughs> I don't know if that's quite right. Um, <clears throat> this is what's intense, is that while God is dealing <clears throat> with the children of Israel in the Sinai Peninsula, in the desert, with their obstinance and their sin, and he's showing him that it's their sin that is causing death, physically, but actually spiritually, more importantly, in their life, and that they need to, there's nothing they can do to remedy it, it is only something that God can provide, and it would be a step of faith for them to receive, would be to look upon to have their sin, to have their sin lifted up, to be nailed, to be fastened, to be crucified to a pole. And there's a transfer of sorts that's going on. God is killing eight birds with one stone because he's also foreshadowing to the future of exactly what God was going to do for the human race in his own son, taking our sin upon himself, dying for your sin and my sin, so that we might be born again, our dead spirit made alive again. God's very spirit coming, uniting with our spirit, and when that happens, our spirit becomes alive. And there's a marriage that's going on, God's spirit, our spirit, Jesus' spirit, with us, with our spirit. There's a union. Getting ahead of myself, here's some similarities between bronze serpent and Jesus on the cross. Both are raised up to save people from death, a physical death, spiritual death. Both were raised up to save people from snake bites, literal snake bite, physical sense, and a literal snake bite spiritual, spiritually, and that our sins separate us from God. Both spoke of sin on a pole. Both spoke of judgment. <clears throat> both demanded faith. Both provided free salvation. For by grace you have been saved by, through faith, and this salvation, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. <clears throat> Seemingly a foolish step. Time's ticking down, but the cure is not self-remedied. Our relationship with God, many of you guys know this. this is where you've heard this many times. So important, though, especially for those who haven't heard. Time is ticking down. We are all sinners in the flesh. We can't earn God's, I'm going to do enough good things and live a good life. I'm going to earn my way back. I'm going to, that's going to cover, that's going to mean that I didn't sin. It's going to cover my sin. It's going to outweigh my sin. I'll merit mercy. God will owe me heaven. I'll work to appease God. I'll do good. I'll make the world a better. I'll be kind. And you know, that's popular. Be kind. It's good to be kind. Being kind doesn't make you right with God. We're all sinners. Cut off from a holy God. Holy is without sin. Heaven is without sin. Not a little bit of sin. Oh, not too bad of sin. That's good. No, heaven is without sin. God is without sin. His people, his kingdom is a sinless kingdom. Try to think of another way to either deny that heaven exists, deny that judgment exists. Uh, there's no judgment. No, that's not... That's, um, what was I thinking? I was sitting on the couch. I was thinking about judgment. I was thinking of um, 
Actually, I think I, um, bear with me, I'm, I'm actually going to touch on that in a couple slides, so I'm going to hold off on that line of thought. So the above actions would result only in denial or self-righteousness. You know, self, I deserve heaven, I, I'm good, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm better than most people I know, I'm better than everybody I know. That's you know, just, just self-righteousness. It just, adds, it just adds another sin to your bank account, your debt. And justice must be served. God, if he is good, then he needs to have justice. Good judges don't let murderers run around on the streets. And even to hate someone in your heart is God, God judges at the heart level, right? He's judging at our motives, even a lust or a hate. That is sin. He's judging at that level because he's good. Well, that's not good that he judges at that. What? It's bad that he judges at that level? No, that means he's good. Uh, I just guess I will carry on with that a little bit. Why? Can you guys just bear with me? I got a lot going on up here. Not all at the right time sometimes. Get in order here. Get in order. I want, I want to speak rightly so people can understand best. And sometimes I battle in my head as to how to do that. Uh, point being before we get there is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, actually a number of times throughout Scripture, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Worldly wisdom. It's not a substitute for spiritual revelation. The revelation of God. Uh, John 3.16, for this is how God loved the world. Wow, so we get to John 3.16, most famous verse in the entire Bible. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There it is. Some people think that God hates the world or that God's responsible for all the sin, the disease, decay, and death in the world. No. That's really silly. Humanity is responsible for all of that. Not God. I have seven kids. I know what the blame game looks like. Someone does something wrong. Well, it's because of what it didn't she? Nah, no, no. We're guilty. And, and then I'm going to give them a consequence. Now I'm the bad guy because I'm giving them a consequence. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone... Everyone who believes in him will not perish, have eternal life. Number three, God reveals his rescue plan. One thing no one should ever doubt is whether God loves them or not. There is no other expression of love that matches this one. Both God the Father and the Messiah whom he sent both wanted to save humanity from sin and death. Both were willing and the mission was completed successfully the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. What does it mean to believe? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, <clears throat> believes is not merely an intellectual acknowledgement. Um, James 2.19 says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God? Good for you. 
Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Satan believes there's a God. Of course he does. Satan believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But a commitment of faith to a new authority, a new kingdom, a new mission. Faith in Jesus as one's Messiah, as their Savior and their leader. So it's not lip service, but it's the genuine heart position of, God, I'm trusting you. You died for my sin. You took my sin upon you. You died. You've given me a new spirit. Just as so you talked about being born again, you're making me, you've made me spiritually alive. I put my faith in you. When you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus puts his spirit in you. And you have new life, and you begin to have some new desires that are just foreign to your natural thought and way of life. You've always had a soul. You've always had a conscience in some way. But now there's something additional. The Spirit of God communicating, downloading. I see this guy here. Um, <clears throat> you know they have those headsets in the, in the helmets? And um, when you put your faith in Christ, you're putting on the helmet and saying, okay, coach, I trust in you. You call the plays. You call the plays. I'll go out and, and do my best. You call the plays, your king, your coach. I'm put on the helmet. You tell me the plays. Now I could I could go out. I could wear the helmet and say, Yeah, I believe. See, I believe in the coach. Yeah, I got the. And I just do all my own plays. I just never listen. I'm running my own plays every time. You know. So <clears throat> it's not our works, our strivings, our goodness that makes us right with God. It's our faith in God. But a genuine faith in God will actually begin to change us from the inside out. And there will be different desires. There will be different a kingdom, a different mission for our life, different value system for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Perish. The wages of sin is death. It's not eternal life, but rather it's the second death, is what Revelation calls it. It's the second death. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says that the manner and duration of a person's destruction will be according to the knowledge and motives that they possessed on earth. And rightly so. Look at this. Luke 12, 47 through 48. He's telling them a parable of, of what the end time judgment will look like and be like. And that servant who knew the master's will and did not prepare himself to do accordingly to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to him who much has been committed, of him will they ask the more. So it is not God's desire that anyone perish, but that all receive his mercy and grace. That's why God so loved the world. Most of us would have kicked the world to the somewhere. Kick the world to the curb. And God said, I love, I want to reconcile, redeem, so forth. 
Everlasting life, what is that? No tears, no sorrow, no pain. Fullness of joy, peace, happiness, full of purpose. And he says, Paul's writing, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I was even thinking, man, on earth we enjoy five senses. And to smell lasagna or apple pie is wonderful. To see the sunset, to see the ocean, to taste, to touch, to see, to hear music. Just unbelievable. What if in heaven we have 10,000 senses? All we know is five senses on earth. That's all we've been given. What if we have 10,000 senses? Can't even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, God is so good. Just wonderful. And he desires mercy, not judgment, for people on earth. John 3, 6, uh, 3, 17 through 18. God sent his son into the world not, say not, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. This is saying something. This is saying that Jesus did not come 2,000 years ago to condemn anyone. And right now, today, he's not trying to condemn anyone. That's not his goal. It's not his mission. Came to save the world through him. Jesus came to save the world through him. If anyone does not, and the world's condemned already, but anyone who does not believe, so if someone has been given the, the full gospel, clarity, understanding of Jesus Christ, and then they... They refuse him and reject him. Well, then right there, they've already, they've judged themselves, right? They've refused mercy. And so they've been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Now, if you haven't heard the full gospel, there's opportunity to do that. And I think of people in third world countries. What about the Aborigines? What about these people? You know, God said that he has placed a soul in each person and those who seek him, not a, no one can seek him according to the flesh. We've all failed, sinful. But he's told people to seek after him and he's promised to give revelation to those who seek him. So how that all works out and how the gospel gets to them and when and where and at what time, you know, there, there's a bit of a mystery there and that could be a talk for another day as well. But um, continuing on, here's number four. Without Jesus, we remain condemned. So God says, hey, world, hey, sinful, gross world that's living in rebellion, whose sin is destroying you and, and that you will be destroyed and that you will perish in your sin, I am sending you a way out of that. It's called the Messiah who's been prophesied about forever. Here he is, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and goes, here I am, here I am. I stand for mercy and grace for all of you guys. I am taking your place on the cross. You reject Jesus. You say no to the grace and mercies of God. You remain con condemned. Actually, add to your condemnation, right? Because now you've rejected the Messiah. Well, that's another sin, another thing on my debt. All right, so here's the, here we go. John 9, uh, 3, 19 through 20. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world 
But the people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. It's talking about the general, the majority of the population, especially um, the Jews of that day. Now, many Jews put their faith in Jesus, but the majority did not at that point in time. Uh, People love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light, and they refuse to go near it for fear that their sins would be exposed. All right, so that's, I mean, that's what a thief would do, right? A thief who's just stolen from your house or or a bank, they don't really hang out at the police station very much unless they're willing to own their mistake. As long as they're clinging to and wanting to... uh, keep and continue in that lifestyle, they're not coming into the light. They will be far from the light. And when Jesus comes into the world, he's exposing. He is a light, and and people are either going to flee from, deny, try to resist, distance themselves from him, from God, or they're going to come and say, I am a sinner. Yeah. Number five, my responsibility to receive or refuse Jesus. That's your, every person individually, that's their responsibility to receive or refuse Jesus. And the amount of revelation that you've been given and that you have, that it's, you're responsible for that. And, um, and we're responsible to, to, um, to seek truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, number one, our sin is exposed before God. We cannot be in the presence of God and our sin not be exposed. It's just evident. And it's there. We can be honest about it. Number two, it's painful and embarrassing to acknowledge our guilt. Oh, man. Nobody likes to do that. I've never once met a person who enjoys being honest about their guilt or their sin. Not one of my kids, I have seven of them, not one of them likes to tell me of their sin. But oh, the relief to let the Savior look us in the eyes and take our sins away. He came for one reason, to seek and save the lost. Jesus came for one reason. He said, I came to lay down my life for my friends. I've come that they might have life and life abundantly. And so Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. So Jesus makes an appeal from God to all creation to receive grace and mercy by way of faith in his work. John 3, 21, last verse, but those who do what is right come to the light. And as a result, others can see that what they're doing, that they're doing what God wants. In other words, you come to God and then God begins to give you new desires and new strength to carry out a different mission and to live for a different kingdom, for a different king, for a different kingdom. It's an inside-out work. Our behaviors take a long time to to change. Sometimes they're hard to change. But our spirit is new. My flesh is still old. It still has a lot of carnal desires. It has to be buffeted, disciplined. It leads me astray. 
My mind has to be renewed all the time because it can go off track. Oh, got to get it back on track. Come back to God's word. Come back to the Lord in prayer. My mind needs to be renewed, but my spirit is alive, brand new, born again. Number six, God redeems and restores our life. When I was in college in Minneapolis, uh, at North Central University, it was a small school. Um, We had intramural sports. We we had some normal sports. We didn't have a football team, but we had intramural football. And um, and so our team was four west. The team that I was on, fourth floor, west side of this floor, the team was made up of guys on that floor, four west, had not won a game in three years. I came on as a freshman. They said, hey, Travis, you have a good arm. You'll be the quarterback. So okay, we lost every game that year. Again, so now four years in a row, not a win. No wins. And every time we went out on the field, it was a fear of failure. Like, how can we not lose? Is there a way we cannot lose? That was in like, is this play, what's the play that, that hopefully won't lose us the game? And so we're just hoping and trying and wishing we could win, but really playing from a fear of failure. That was, that was what's inside. And so my sophomore year, we're playing again, lose our first two games of the season. And then this guy right here, down on the left-hand corner, who's down on all fours kind of, right down here, that's Ryan Edwards. And Ryan Edwards came up to me and said, Travis, I'm going to run five yards. I'm going to do a hook. And when I turn around, make sure the ball's there. Just do that. All right, nothing else works. I do what he says. Threw it to him. This guy was an animal. All year long. Ryan Edwards turned. We got one win. We ran, won the rest of our games that year. Won all the playoff games and won the championship game. Hadn't won a game in four years. Won the rest of our games, all the playoffs, and the championship game. It was incredible. You guys notice this other face? Kind of right up in the middle Shane Birkin. If any of you guys know Shane Birkin, and then I'm way up there in the really skinny guy up there. Playing to win. From then on, we played to win. And um, just our whole mentality and our whole perspective changed. And I tell you what, when Jesus comes and says, let me be king of your life, let me be your savior, and you say yes to him, Entire life, your entire perspective changes. The way you view the world, completely different. Not living for this world. I'm living for my king, living for Jesus, living for another world. I'm not perfect here. Still, I'm a long way from perfect, but I have a new operating system. It's called the Holy Spirit. And my spirit has been born again. And there's a whole new outlook on life. And there's love for people that I didn't have in the natural. It's pretty profound. Guys, I encourage you guys to say yes to Jesus if you've never done that. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus and his claims, for his work in history, for his promises to all who would believe in him, Lord.
And Lord, I've presented uh, to people best I can a portion of John chapter 3. And I've given them information for their head. But right now, God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do what you promised he would do. And that's to confirm your word and your truths to people and your love to them. Said you would convict the world of sin, that you would testify of righteousness. I believe that's through your son, Jesus. And you'd warn of judgment. And so would you do that, Lord, this morning? And uh, we just commit the rest of this day to you. And we are thank you, thankful, Lord, for your uh, kingship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.